Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Just a couple notes before we dive into this. On my desk, back in my office, there are some dishes that belong to some of you. Um, you can feel free to take those home with you today. There are also some videotapes on VHS, um, a few of which say that it's Pastor McNabb on there. If you would like to take some of those, take those home, you can feel free to stop by there in a, there in a cardboard box on my desk. Um, I wasn't there for it, so I don't know what it was, but it's the sermon that he preached. So if you'd like to watch him on VHS, please feel free to take some of those VHS tapes home with you. Um, there are a few more in there that don't necessarily have his name on there, but there are some that we found while we were doing some work in the, uh, in the storage room. So I just wanted to make those available to you guys. Um, also, there are two other cardboard boxes on my desk with notebooks, with uh, binders in them. Those are for you guys to take home. That's going to be a project we're going to be working on together as a church um, throughout the course of the next year, year and a half or so. Um, they have some passages in there that we're going to work through memorizing together. Um, we'll talk more about that later, um, but you can take that home with you if you'd like to get a head start. We're not going to start the project here for a little a couple of weeks or so. But I wanted to make those available to you in case you wanted to get a head start on those. Um, so all that stuff's on my desk. Please take a stop by there on your way home today or before and grab some of those materials that are available to you. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully, hope, you are, hope you benefit from those uh, materials. Matthew chapter 14. <clears throat> we just saw Jesus in this passage performing one of the most memorable miracles that he ever performed. Uh, the last time we came together, we talked about Jesus feeding 5,000 people with just a little bit of food. A few loaves, a couple fishes, and he fed at least 5,000 people, not including women and children. And, I mean, can you imagine just being there? For that to happen, being part of that crowd, being one of his, his disciples, and seeing Jesus perform this miracle. I mean, John expounds upon the spiritual significance of this, um, this miracle, showing that Jesus is the bread from heaven. He is better than what Moses provided. He is the bread that gives eternal life, etc., but this is one of the most profound miracles that Jesus has performed in his ministry, and it is one of the most memorable ones. People that don't even really go to church or haven't been brought up in this will often still recognize the feeding of the 5,000 as one of Jesus' miracles. And immediately, right after this, we're going to dive into today's miraculous adventure of Jesus and the disciples. Uh, before we do, I would like to pray Seek the Lord's guidance as we look into this great work of Jesus and what it means for us today. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the great salvation that humbles us, that tears us down, that is the remover of strongholds, the cleanser of sins, the defeater of Satan, the giver of life eternal. And Lord, there are many people, millions of people, meeting throughout the United States today under the, under the umbrella of Jesus. And Lord, this is a joy to think about, but it is also a grief to think about because we know that many of these are meeting in the name of, really, in the name of their own self-righteousness, adding a badge to their personal goodness going to church but Lord we also take joy in those who are truly meeting together in the name of Jesus in recognition of what he has done for us we are here because he has saved us because you have father have loved us and you have loved us Enough to send Jesus to be the atonement for our sins, the sins that otherwise we would bear on our own. 
And I pray that we would always see Jesus high and lifted up, that we would not see a church production as the purpose for which we come together, but we meet simply in simplicity, in the sincerity of the remembrance of Jesus Christ, whose body we are, the many members of it. I pray that whether this or that might happen, that our focus and our goal would be to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to uplift Him and give Him the proper place that He deserves, for you have given Him a name that is above every name. And at His name, every knee shall bow. And Lord, I pray that our knees would be bowing, at least in our spirits today, as we look into the Scriptures, as they portray Jesus for us. May your grace go before us as we seek to know him better. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to read here, in verse, chapter, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. We're going to read through this, this story of Jesus together, and then we're going to dive into it, no pun intended, um, and learn what we can, what we can glean from this um, story. Matthew 14, 22, immediately, so immediately right after feeding the 5,000, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus had just fed 5,000 people moments before this story occurred. One of the most memorable miracles Jesus would ever perform just happened. It was so profound that some of the people in that crowd were ready to take Jesus by force and to make him king. I mean, this is how profound this was, this moment in time, how powerful it was to the people that were present there. They wanted to just take him, set him up as king, just send him out against Rome, against Caesar, against the local rulers, take back Israel, because Jesus had provided a meal miraculously for 5,000 plus people. And now we enter into this story. The first word we read in this passage in verse 22 is immediately. There's no time between what had just happened and what is about to happen. Jesus essentially kicks his disciples out um, while he dismisses the crowds that he had just fed. Um, and since they had traveled a long way to hear his teachings, perhaps he was just he was loving them. He was appreciating that they had come. Um, and now he kicks his disciples out. Maybe he's trying to give them a break, trying to get them away from the crowds to go to the next destination. He's going to linger behind. He's going to dismiss the crowds, see their way off. And then he's going to catch up with them later, um, which is interesting to see because he's considering the needs of his disciples, even though he himself hasn't had any sleep and he has been busy with the crowds all day long. He lets them take their leave of the large, busy crowd. Once Jesus finishes with the crowd, he takes his own leave and goes up on a mountain to pray. By this time, it is very late. Um, he began feeding the 5,000. We can see in verse 15 um, that it said that um, now when it was evening. So it was already evening when Jesus started 
feeding the 5,000. And you can imagine how long it would take to distribute food to 5,000 plus people. And by this time that we get to this scene, when Jesus has fed the people, he's dismissed the people, he's dismissing thousands of people, this is taking some time. And it's getting late in the day. It was, who knows, it may have been midnight by this time. It was probably very dark. Um, Jesus makes his way up to a mountain, not to sleep, but to pray to his Father. At the beginning of the miracle, he prayed and gave thanks to the Father for what he was about to do. And now he is taking his leave and thanking the Father, probably for what had just happened. Um, and probably He was spending hours in prayer, probably, um, just fellowshipping with his Father. But when we see, um, we jump ahead a few hours um, in verse... Um, so the end of verse, verse 23, when evening came, he was there alone, verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land being beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, okay, so now the fourth watch of the night is about three to six in the morning. So some hours have passed. Jesus has been praying by himself. The disciples have been trying to get across this um, sea of Galilee to the other side in the middle of a storm. And uh, we jump into the scene here, and John. Spe- if we read this account, this parallel account in the book of John, John specifies that they were about three to four miles away from the shore, across, going probably southeast across to the Sea of Galilee. Um, there's a storm on the Sea of Galilee, uh, making their journey quite difficult. And we, we see Jesus performing... One more of his most memorable miracles. And this is portrayed even in movies. Jesus walking on water. Verse 25 here in our scene. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So he's walking. Remember, they're about three to four miles out. And he's walking across three to four miles worth of water, stormy water, to get to his disciples. The next we hear... Okay, so Jesus is getting to them without a boat. He is literally walking on the water in the middle of the storm. In verse 26, we see the reaction of the disciples. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said it was a ghost. (laughs) I mean, can you kind of relate to them a little bit? I mean, put yourself in the, in the boat that the disciples are in. They're hard at work trying to get through this storm, trying to get to the other side, trying not to sink the ship, trying not to fall out of the ship, trying to keep the sails safe and not ripping or what, whatever it is that they were doing in the midst of their, of their sailing. I'm not a sailor. I don't know what it all entails. All I know is that it's not good to be sailing in the middle of a big old thunderstorm. <laughs> um, and Jesus appears to them. They see, they, you know, they're in the midst of their... Um, their activity, they look out on the water and they see a figure that looks like a person out in the water. No boat. I mean, how would you feel if you saw that? (laughs) They were terrified, as is probably understandable. (laughs) Um, how How many times had the disciples ever known anybody to walk in the water? Think about the Old Testament. When was there any story when somebody walked on the water? I mean, they, this is a completely new concept. Nobody has ever walked on water. The, the closest we get to it is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep before any land had been formed on the earth. That's really the closest we get to this. And here we see Jesus comes in very spirit-like fashion, walking on the water to the disciples. And it's understandable why they might be a little bit afraid. I mean, and, there, and some of these disciples were fishermen. They knew all the, the you know, the, the tales about um, uh, sea creatures and monsters. And, all, you know, there's lots of stories of, that sailors pass around about mystical things that happen out on the water. And perhaps they're thinking that perhaps this is one of those scary water stories that are coming true to them and that, you know, they are sure to die. Because, um, you know, superstition was more prevalent back then, especially within the sailor um, 
lifestyle. But Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, um, he came to them and quickly consoled them. He says, you know, so we see again the same word that we saw at the beginning of the story. In verse 27, immediately. So they see him, they cry out, it's a ghost. Immediately Jesus says, don't take heart, don't be afraid, it is I. So he's crying out to them, making sure that they um, kind of calm down a little bit. They don't need to be afraid because it's just Jesus. It's Jesus. You know, it's not just Jesus, but it's Jesus. It's not a ghost. It's not some mythical creature. It's not some banshee or something. No, it's Jesus. He is safe. He is performing one of his most profound miracles. The miracle about the 5,000, we see him taking control of the natural realm and manipulating it to do whatever he wanted it to do. People don't just make tons and tons of food out of just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fishes. He's showing his authority over creation. And again, he is showing his authority to his disciples over creation. People don't just go walk on water. But Jesus is showing them he has authority. He's prolonging this lesson that they're supposed to be learning from the feeding of the 5,000, that he has control over creation. Peter, in verse 28, in Peter's typical eccentrically rash fashion, he risks his own life to know whether or not it was really Jesus. (laughs) He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I mean, there are a lot of ways that a person could react to this. This is not one that I would have chosen. (laughs) You know, what if you're wrong? (laughs) What if it's not really Jesus? Then you're dead. (laughs) You know, and but this is just Peter, right? Peter just he just when you if you were to just read the stories of Peter, you just have to chuckle all the way through it because he's just such a rash person. Doing, saying some weird things, doing some rash things. And here he is saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Peter's use of words is, is a little bit interesting. He's asking, like a faithful servant would stand before a master, he starts out by saying, Lord. We can't miss the significance, because we read the word Lord all the way through the scriptures. You know, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord God. You know, we see the word Lord come up quite often in the scriptures. We see it quite often in relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot miss the significance of the term Lord. Lord means master. Lord is an authoritative um, designation. If you have a land Lord, that means you are renting a property And there is somebody who owns that property, who has control over that property, who calls the shots about that property, and you have to follow their rules simply because they are your landlord. They are the master of the property that you are dwelling in. Lord is an authority term. So, and Peter addresses him like that. He's saying, Lord, if it is you, then he uses the word command. Give me the command. Tell me to come out to you on the water. Give me the order and I will obey. So he's coming to him like a a very zealous servant. Lord, command me. I will obey. Command me to come out and do this miracle with you. He is willing then and there to place himself into submission to Christ and his power. Perhaps he was a little foolhardy, but nevertheless, he is also trying to obey Christ's command to take courage. Okay, Jesus just commanded them, take heart, do not be afraid. And Paul Peter is kind of taking that to the extreme. <laughs> you know, he's not only trying to not be afraid, but he's also overcoming fear with <laughs> a little eccentric um, exertion here. Um, and at first he was filled with fear. A second later, he has an insane amount of courage. <laughs> Peter loved his Jesus. So Jesus, in verse 29, tells Peter, come. Very simple command, come. Peter obeys in an unthinkable way. In the middle of a storm, Peter steps out of his fishing boat, 
places his foot on the water and begins his short journey towards Jesus, doing what no person other than Jesus had ever done. You've got to see the significance of this story. Nobody has done this. <laughs> and now Peter is doing it with Jesus. He knew that the waves were there when he stepped out of the boat. But in the moment of awe and wonder, when Jesus revealed himself in a very powerful way, Peter had full faith in his power. He has seen Jesus out there. I mean, this situation is new. It's exciting. It's profound. And right now, Peter is overwhelmed with the profundity of Christ's power. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where it was just so clear that God was working in that situation? And it was so easy in that situation to follow him. You would do anything for Jesus at that moment. Just like Peter is doing here. But then it doesn't take a long time. And perhaps you relate with Peter in verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. I mean, he'd been seeing the wind for hours. I mean, this is, the wind is not new. The wind has been there this whole time. The waves have been there this whole time. He's been afraid of those waves for hours now. For miles, for miles worth of journey on the water. He was overwhelmed with faith in Jesus Christ because of the, because of the depth of the situation that was going on. And now, but it, just in seconds later, Peter sees the wind and he was afraid again. And then he began to sink. Hey, can you relate to Peter? You come out of those profound situations where it's so easy to follow Jesus because you can just sense his presence so clearly, you can see his power so clearly, you can, it just seems so easy to follow him in those moments, but then you wake up the next morning and it seems like it all just went away. And now you're just overwhelmed by your situation again. I've been there. I know exactly how that feels. And Peter is there right now. I mean, Jesus is still performing a miracle. He's still walking on the water. He was still supporting Peter walking on the water as well. I mean, just you put your foot on the water and you don't sink. I mean, wow. <laughs> Imagine that. But how easy was it still for Peter to just become afraid again? This is the human condition, folks. This is not some special type of depravity. This is just the human condition. We see where we're at and we become afraid. Particularly when that fearful situation takes our eyes off of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though we just saw him in a very clearly sovereign and powerful way. <laughs> Jesus called him to come out on the water. Peter steps on the water. But just moments later, the short journey ends by a little bit of getting wet. Peter starts to sink. He was out there with Jesus, partaking in his power, but his courage begins to fail. Things are getting real now, so to speak. He is beginning to remember that people don't walk on water <laughs> and that waves are dangerous when you're out on the ocean. The waves were convincing him that he should fear rather than to have faith. The, the, the waves were telling him a lie. They were telling him that the waves are actually more powerful than Jesus. When Jesus was just showing him, no, I am the Lord of the waves. I have the power over the waves. I have the power over the water. But the waves, they beat in more ways than one. They beat against our soul. They cause us to fear. They cause us to think that whatever it is we're going through is more powerful than Jesus can accommodate. Even though we've seen Jesus accommodate it. And the waves win this round with Peter. But you know what? Peter still, he has enough wits about him to cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, save me. He still uses that word, Lord, Master. He still knows what's true, even though he did look at the waves, even though he did fear for a moment there. 
even though that fear did cause him to doubt. Yet he still knew that Jesus is Lord, and he still knew that Jesus could save him from that situation. Again, human condition, we are easily swayed by our environment, but yet we can still have just a little bit of faith to cry out, Lord, save me. And what does Jesus do? Jesus is faithful to Peter. Jesus immediately, again, we see the word again for the third time, verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. So we see the great mercy of Jesus. He was not going to let Peter go. But he also said something that we might think is a little rash, but it's Jesus. Jesus doesn't do things that are wrong. He says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You and I know why Peter doubted, because we know that people don't just walk on water in the, middle of a, in the middle of a thunderstorm. We can understand Peter a little bit here. But, Peter, but Jesus still pushes him. Jesus still says, oh, you of little faith. He still had some faith. He still had a little faith. But Jesus is chastising him in a way. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? <laughs> Regardless of the situation, the question is still worth considering, even though we might think first off, like, why would Jesus say that? I mean, at least Peter had the faith to come out in the first place. I mean, none of the other disciples were stepping out of the boat. Peter did. I mean, shouldn't he get a little bit of a, you know, shouldn't he get a sticker or something for that? <laughs> you know, he came out of the boat. Jesus, why are you being so harsh with Peter? But he still says to Peter, why did you doubt? And it's, and it's really worth considering. Because you have to wonder, why did he doubt? Why did he doubt? He doesn't converse with him about it. They don't have a conversation right away. He just leaves him with this rhetorical question. Peter, why did you doubt? And perhaps that question stuck in his mind for some time. Perhaps that caused him to do a lot of thinking. And I think he perhaps had this in his mind when he wrote one of the passages we're going to look to. We're going to get there in a second here. But I want you to, we're going to, let's read the last verse here, or the last two verses, verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, okay, so Christ's power, we can see the will of God in this situation. The, wind, the waves were only there until the lesson was taught, and then the waves stopped. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Okay, so they got something out of this. Truly, you are the Son of God. I mean, that is a good lesson to learn. To know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Creator, the Former of the heavens and the earth, whom Jesus was the power behind. But we also see Mark has a little bit more pessimistic of a view of this situation. Mark chapter 6, verses 51 and 52 give a different perspective of the same situation. Now, he's not telling the story differently. He's just filling us in with some extra information. Because they truly did say, you are the Son of God. But they were also missing something. And this kind of is an answer to the question, why did you doubt? Verse 51, and he says, and he got into the boat with them. This is the same story. We're getting to the end of Mark's account of this. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So they were supposed to have learned something from the situation with the loaves and the fishes, the feeding of the 5,000. They were supposed to see very profoundly Jesus' power and authority over creation. They were supposed to see him as the bread from heaven, the one sent from God. Now they did get that to a degree. I mean, in Matthew, they say, truly, you are the Son of God. They were convinced in that moment that Jesus was the Son of God. But also, they were utterly astounded. They were taken back. They were, I mean, the word for astounded means like overturned. They were turned upside down because of this situation. You know, it's kind of, you, know, you can see a nautical term. You know, the, the boat flips over. <laughs> the, the boat of their mind kind of flipped over. They were astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't quite get the whole picture. That's why Peter doubted. 
Because even though they got something very good out of this, that Jesus is truly the Son of God, they still didn't get everything. They were still missing something. They were utterly astounded because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They still aren't seeing Jesus fully yet. Even though Jesus has proven himself time and time again. And what is he proving? Well, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus showed very clearly his compassion on the people. The whole reason he did this was because he had compassion on these people who had traveled all day to come see Jesus. They had no food to eat. They were going to, be, they were going to faint on the way back home because they were miles out in the desert. And at the end of the day, they hadn't eaten anything all day. Jesus had compassion on them, and he fed them. Jesus showed his love and compassion very clearly to these disciples. They should have known that he was not going to let them drown. He was not going to let them go. He had shown himself faithful time and time again. Can you relate to that? Has God shown himself faithful to you time and time again? So you know he is not going to let you go. Peter, why did you doubt Sometimes we have to say that sometimes. Why did I doubt? Why did I doubt Jesus? Because he has shown himself to be loving and merciful to me time and time again. I don't need to doubt about this. I don't need to doubt his love. He has shown it to me. Not only that, but in the feeding of the 5,000, he showed his power and authority over the elements. He showed very clearly that he can do whatever he wants with whatever he wants. And he has not only done this with that situation, but multiple other situations before that. He has shown himself Lord over every realm of creation, physical, spiritual, concerning health, concerning food, concerning the soul. He is he is the authority over all creation in every aspect. And he has proven that time and time again. We see it in the scriptures and perhaps you've seen it in your own life. So why did they doubt? Why did Peter doubt? Because they hadn't quite learned it yet, even though they'd seen it. Even though they had the information, it hadn't become part of them. This is why Jesus can rightly chastise his disciples. He has made known his great love, his compassion, his power, his authority over and over, especially in that very profound moment of feeding the 5,000. Oh, ye of little doubt, faith, why did you doubt? It's a right charge. And perhaps there could be good reason if he had not revealed his greatness. Perhaps we would be, it would be, have been more understandable to Jesus if, Je if this was the first miracle Jesus had ever performed. But it was not. They'd seen it all before. But he, he has revealed his greatness. So his question is legitimate. I've revealed my power and authority over these situations. Why are you doubting me now? Now we're going to get to what we need to learn from this. And after the message, you can stop by at the table in the back. I've written these points down. Um, for you to take home with you with the scripture passages. What we need to learn from this, one, God's revelation of Jesus Christ is enough. What God has revealed to us about Jesus and himself is enough. We do not need special revelation. Many times, perhaps you've even done this yourself. I've done this, in the, especially in a difficult time. God, just reveal yourself to me in a special, profound way. The answer being, he already has. The problem is, we refuse to believe what we've been given. He doesn't need to reveal himself again. He's already done it here. What we need is, open, you know, their hearts were hardened. That's why they didn't understand it in Mark chapter 6. They had seen it all. They had everything they needed in order to, to have faith in Christ, but their hearts were hardened. What we need is not more revelation. What we need is not more information. What we need is the heart to accept what has already been given to us. For that part of our heart that is still hard to be softened. 
to turn from stone into flesh. What we need is for us to change, for God to open the eyes of our soul to see and to believe what has already been given to us. God does not need to change his approach. We need to change our approach. God is not responsible for giving us more revelation. We are responsible for believing what has been given to us. 2 Peter chapter 1, written by the Peter that we've just been talking about, so I think it's very appropriate that we read this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. says, Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. I love how he introduces himself and uh, approaches his audience. Because Peter is an apostle. By this time, Jesus has risen. He's been filled with the Spirit. He's been performing miracles and preaching and planting churches and all this type of stuff. People have been holding Peter on kind of a pedestal by the time he writes this. And he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours, <laughs> by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He's establishing that his readers, which I would say would include you and me, have the same faith that Peter had. We have the same Jesus that Peter had because our worth and our value is not defined by our, our standing with people, but by, as he says, the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then we have the same standing with God that Peter had. That's the glory of the grace of God. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, our, and of Jesus our Lord. See that? We're already kind of making some ties in with the story we just read. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What was supposed to give Peter peace while he was on the water, in the storm? Knowledge of Jesus. Knowledge of what Jesus was capable of, what he has done, what he's there for. That was all what was taking place on the, on the Sea of Galilee here. Peace was being offered to the disciples because of knowledge that he had given them of himself. Verse 3, his divine power has granted us to all, his divine power has granted to us all things that all things that pertain to life and godliness, through, again, the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have everything we need for life, for godliness, based on what? Knowledge of Jesus Christ. What has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We have everything we need in Christ. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He has granted to us promises. Is he a liar? We see his life, we see his teachings, we see his promises in the scripture. We have already been given these things. We don't need more promises. We don't need more revelation. We have it all. If we believe it, we can rest in it. If we believe it, we can rest in it and know the peace that passes understanding that can give us a calm heart while we stand upon the waves because we have Jesus already given to us Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, our effectiveness in life, our godliness, our growth, our progress in the Christian life is all tied to 
the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, His power, His authority, His love, His compassion, His grace that we already have a record of here in the Scriptures that we can learn of and put our faith in. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities, okay, this is Jesus, maybe Peter had to, had to cry a little bit at this point because he remembers lacking faith in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, <clears throat> you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we see here this faith in, Jesus, in the revealed Jesus Christ is tied to our eternal inheritance. This faith, if we truly believe in who Jesus is, what he has come to do, that faith will spill into the rest of our life. If it is true and if we are, by faith, venturing out on the waters where Jesus is with Peter. Not that Peter didn't fall, okay? But he has fallen for our instruction that we might believe. He, his faith has wavered so that our faith might be strong. So that we can learn from him. And, he keep, and Peter keeps going on in verse 12. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, okay? This is one of the reasons we have to come together. Not to talk about what games are on tonight after church. Not to talk to us necessarily even about like, you know, what was going on during our week. Even though it's nice to know those things, it's nice to be part of each other's lives. Those things are not wrong to talk about. But one of the things that we struggle with that perhaps we don't even know we struggle with is reminding, remembering who we are in Christ. Who Christ is. What he's capable of. How he can carry us through. How his... His authority and His power can show up in our lives. How His compassion surrounds us day in and day out. We need to tell each other these things. We need to remind each other. He uses another word coming up here. It says, Therefore I intend always to remind you, verse 12, of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right as long as I am the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. We need to be stirred up by the way of reminder that we do not forget the walk that we can have in Christ Jesus. That we can go out on the waters because Christ is our strength. Christ is our stability in this crazy world that is constantly pushing us, pressing on us to love the kingdom of this world greater than the kingdom of God and heaven. We need to stir one another up by way of reminder Verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at all times to recall these things so that we can recall them. We can remember them even on our own at some point. In verse 16, the last verse in this passage, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Why is Peter so powerful in this proclamation? Because he was there. He experienced the power of Christ. He saw him. He touched him. He talked with him. He was on the water with Jesus. He experienced the miraculous power of God himself. He partook of the loaves and the fishes. He saw it all happen. He knows. He's reminding us that these are not like the stories of Greek mythology that somebody just made up so that we could have you know, some fake awe and wonder of some mystical God. No, he's eyewitnesses. We're not following stories that somebody is telling just for the sake of effect. He was there. He's an eyewitness. He made known to us the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because he was there experiencing it all firsthand. These are not just random stories that somebody cleverly devised. This is real, and you can believe it. You can believe the Jesus that is in here. So, 
God's revelation is enough. That's the first thing we need to take from this. God's revelation of Jesus is enough. We just need to believe it. Two, that we need to follow Christ by faith no matter how risky or sacrificial it might seem. I'm just going to read through some of these passages. There's three passages I want to look through. I don't have time to belabor them per se, but I think that they'll speak for themselves. Luke 9, 23-26 say, And he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Peter was willing to die just to know that it was Jesus. He was willing to be overtaken by the waves just so that he could perhaps spend some time with Jesus out on the water. Whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus said, he will save it. Whoever saves his life will lose it. We spend so much effort trying to protect ourselves, trying to set up our own kingdom, so we no longer follow Jesus. We just follow the priorities of the American dream. We're not willing to lose our life in order to find it. That's not the American dream. The American dream is not to lose your life. It's to build a good kingdom for yourself and for your family. But that's not the way of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall, again, remember, recall the former days when after you were enlightened or came to know the knowledge of Jesus, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So why were they willing to lose everything? They knew they had a better possession coming up ahead and an eternal one. That's what he means by an abiding possession. It's an eternal one. It doesn't go away. Nobody can plunder that. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor life, nor death, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God we have in Christ Jesus. That cannot be plundered. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need, much, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Luke 18. Verse 28 to 30. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. See, the way of Christ, if you want to know how to follow Jesus out on the waters, then give up your life. Surrender it to Jesus. Don't hold anything back. Because you know the type of Jesus that you follow that has been recorded in scriptures, the one who is Lord over all creation, the Lord who is fully capable of taking care of your needs while you're following him. When did the disciples ever lack anything? They didn't have a house that they lived in while they followed Jesus. Did they ever lack anything? They had given up everything, yet they always had what they needed. And they were following Jesus. If you want to know how to follow Jesus, then you're going to need to know a life of sacrifice. Not a life of constantly building and protecting and saving, and, but a life of giving. A life of setting aside 
That's the way of God. That's, that's the counterintuitive way of Christ. True faith, though perhaps small, results in action. Peter, you saw Peter's faith because he acted. He stepped out there on the water. Yeah, his faith had not yet been perfected. But he still knew Jesus was Lord. He still knew that Jesus could save him in the moment of his terrible need. He knew the compassion and the love of Jesus. True faith in who Jesus actually is, not just some mystical, superstitious conceptualization of Jesus. True faith in the real, revealed Jesus, though perhaps small, results in action. These actions may come along with failure, disappointment, and fear from time to time. But the litmus test of true faith is this. When I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, does it empower me for action or entitle me? Do I just feel entitled to eternal life? Or am I empowered to go and chase after it, knowing that Christ is there with me and he's going to give me what he has promised? If you're entitled and you sit back and you feel like you can just do nothing, then you don't really have a true faith in the real Jesus. Anytime we see anybody in Scripture who has true faith in Jesus Christ, they do something with it. That true faith saves. What you do with it is not what saves you. Jesus saves. And when you know that Jesus saves, then you go and you follow him. That's the litmus test. You go out and you actually follow him with the power and strength that he provides. Or do you just sit back and just take you know, whatever comes to you, expecting that Jesus is now your, your heavenly servant who has to make all your dreams come true? So the two things we need to learn, God's revelation of Jesus Christ is enough, and we do not need special revelation in order to trust Jesus. And two, we can follow Christ by faith, no matter how risky or sacrificial it might seem. These are, there are many things we could learn in this passage, but here's at least a couple that we can take with us. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the example that he has shown us, for the power that he has shown us, the authority and the compassion and love that he has shown us. I pray, Lord, that we would take these things to heart, that we would not have a hard heart to not learn what we can learn in the revealed Jesus. Strengthen our faith, Lord, for we are weak and we need your strength. In his name I pray, amen.